966 in the church bible and 1502 in the large print bible uh, matthew chapter 2 and verses 12 to verse 23 <clears throat> well matthew uh, so far in his gospel as we've been looking at it has been showing us that jesus christ is king jesus is king In chapter 1, we see that he is king by his history, that is his ancestors. He is the son of David, and he is the son of God. He's king by his history. In chapter 2 on Christmas morning, we looked at the fact that he is king by homage. By homage, that is, people from all nations come and worship Jesus Christ as king. That's what the, 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 the Magi represent, people coming from the east from all nations to worship him as king. He's king by history, by homage. And tonight, as we come to the next part of Matthew chapter 2, we see him as king by hatred, acknowledged as king by hatred. That is, that King Herod would not be bothered about Jesus if he was a nobody. But we saw on Christmas morning that Herod knew that Jesus Christ, the one they were talking about having been born in Bethlehem, was not a nobody, he was the Messiah, the King of the Jews. And so Herod wanted to see Jesus destroyed. Although Matthew shows us that Jesus is King, we were introduced at the beginning of Matthew 2 to this other King, Herod the Great, as he was called. Now, God has a plan, as we saw in chapter 1, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. God has a plan to save his people from sin, but Herod has a plan also. And his plan is to destroy this saviour. He wants to murder Jesus. That's the plan of Herod. And the focus of this next section moves towards King Herod and King Jesus And we see that there are two kings and there are two plans. Two kings and two plans. And the two kings are King Herod on the one side and King Jesus on the other. But really we see here, and as we read in Revelation 12, that Herod really is in the hands of the devil and King Jesus is in the hands of his heavenly father. And we saw in Revelation 12 this drama is played out in the stars, where the dragon or the devil tries to snatch the infant child from the mother's womb at birth. And as we see Matthew chapter 2, verses 12 to 23, we see what is pictured in the heavens is dramatically played out here on the earth. So let's read how that plays out as we read Matthew chapter 2, verses 12 to 23. So the Magi have uh, just been worshipping Jesus, and it says in verse 12, And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. 
where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now to help us understand uh, this passage, I want you to think of an onion. Okay, now you might think that's really strange. But the reason I want you to think of an onion is because an onion is multi-layered. And the more you peel off of an onion and get to the center, the stronger the flavor becomes. And as we look at this passage, uh, we're going to sweep through it three times, each time, uh, if you like, peeling back a little bit more of the onion until we get to the center, the central point. Now, as we look at the first layer of this passage, I want you to see that Satan has a plan to destroy Jesus. Satan has a plan in this passage to destroy Jesus. Remember that King Herod is being used by Satan to attempt to destroy King Jesus. Now King Herod wants to destroy him, but Satan is at work as well. And this passage records three attempts to destroy the child. So I want us to look at those three attempts first of all. So first of all, we see that there is a targeted assassination in verse 12. Now verse 12 records the end of the section about the Magi. In this passage, King Herod has asked the Magi to go to Jerusalem and then report back to him where the child was so that he could worship him. That was in uh, verses 7 and 8. The reader of this passage, though, we know, don't we, that there is no intention on Herod's part of worshipping Jesus. But if the Magi were able to tell Herod the exact location of the child, Herod could then go and murder the child easily at that location. And that explains why when the Magi don't comply with his plans, we read in verse 16 that he is furious. And so we see that Herod has a a plan B, which is known as the massacre of the innocents. The massacre of the innocents. That's in verse, verse 16. Herod sends his soldiers to kill all of the baby boys in Bethlehem. When we read in verse 16 that Herod was furious, the meaning is that he was out of control with anger. And in a sense, he was out of control. Satan was using Herod to murder these babies to capture Jesus. 
In verse 7, Herod asked what time the star had first appeared. And the time of the star's appearance was not necessarily the same time as the child was born. And so the Magi must have told that Herod that the star had appeared within the two-year time frame of these children being born. And so Herod would have chosen two years as a number to ensure that there was some contingency and that he would definitely get Jesus. He also chose, it says, to kill all the children in Bethlehem and its vicinity just in case Jesus lived in the suburbs of Bethlehem. There would probably have been around maybe 20 children murdered in this event. Bethlehem was a small place. Sometimes you may hear that this is unreliable history, that it's not mentioned anywhere else but Matthew. And the response is that Herod was such an evil king that this didn't really make the news. A few children in a small town. But it does, however, fit hand in glove with the kind of man and the kind of king Herod was, who was so paranoid about keeping his throne, he even murdered some of his own sons and his own wife. As we know, this plan also failed, but Herod wasn't to know this. Herod died shortly after the massacre in Bethlehem. In his will, he divided his kingdom between some of his remaining children. He declared his son, Archelaus, to be king, but his son Antipas to rule over an area of Galilee and Perea, and another son called Philip to reign over some territories east of the Jordan River. Now, all of this had to be ratified by the Roman Empire, and the will of Herod prevailed, and Archelaus became the king, although Rome didn't recognize him as such, and they said, in order to be called king, you have to prove your worth. He would have to earn the title by ruling well. Well, this was the king, Archelaus, that was in place when Joseph came back from Egypt, King Archelaus. And this was, if you like, the third attempt on the life of Jesus. He was not like his father Herod, who for all his faults was a political genius. He did not rule well. He was deposed by the Romans in 6 AD, and they put governors in charge on the throne instead, one of which was Pontius Pilate. But when Joseph came back from Egypt, he was fearful of Archelaus, and rightly so, because Archelaus was a threat to the life of Jesus. And so the plan, any plan to, to murder Jesus was foiled by Joseph going to settle in Nazareth uh, with his wife Mary and the child. So very briefly, we see there three times uh, Satan attempting to kill Jesus. Three times the plan is foiled. But before we look at how God preserved the life of Christ in the midst of these attacks, it's worthwhile considering the fact that Satan has this plan to destroy Jesus. And Jesus told us that if we are his followers, then we too should expect trouble. For Satan did not destroy Jesus. Jesus did die, but he died 30 years later on the cross, and he rose again from the dead. And now Satan's attacks are focused on the church, on the people of God. The church should expect trouble. And this can take different forms. 
For some, it's like we read here. Satan attacks the church through physical persecution, attempting to wipe them out. And it's important that we do pray for brothers and sisters around the world who suffer in this way, who can't worship Jesus over this Christmas time, but must do so in secret for fear of their life, just like Jesus had to hide here. But we can also come under attack through temptation to sin and compromise, which can also destroy the church. We need to be wary of this and not bow to pressure to disobey the word of God. Rather, we should remember the Lord's teaching on prayer and pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And wonderfully, in this passage, we see this prayer answered. For we see that as well as Satan having a plan to destroy Jesus, God has a plan to deliver Jesus. So this, if you like, is another layer being peeled off. Satan is attempting to destroy. Jesus is delivered. We see that whilst on earth Satan is attacking Jesus and Joseph is escaping the traps The hero of this account is not Joseph. God is the hero. He is the one making the escape possible. And four times in this passage, God brings about deliverance by speaking in dreams. But just as Joseph is not the hero of this passage, neither are dreams the main point either. As fascinating as a study on dreams would no doubt be, They are simply the means here that God uses to speak to the Magi and to Joseph to deliver his son from harm. God can speak through dreams today. But he also speaks through circumstances, through other people, but primarily through his word. We should look at his word to hear him speak and do what his word has commanded us to do. That's the the primary way God speaks to us. And as an aside, if you are interested in dreams in any way, you will never dream anything from God that is not commanded, or, or not, um, that is contrary, rather, to his word. But if we look at these uh, three attempts again from Satan, we can see in each one how God delivers Jesus in all of them. So first of all, the target is assassination. So in verse 12, the Magi would go back to Herod. But God told them in a dream to not go there, and it says they went home in another direction. Now, we don't know what direction that was. We don't know where. We don't hear from them again, but they certainly avoided Jerusalem. This diversion would have given Joseph and Mary plenty of time to take Jesus and go to Egypt, which was about 75 miles walk to the border away, before Herod's soldiers would come and take Jesus away. So he's delivered from this, uh, this assassination, but he's delivered also from the massacre of the innocents. So the Magi had gone, and now Joseph has a dream in which God tells him to go to Egypt and to stay there until he's told to come back. Why Egypt? Well, Egypt was actually a natural place to flee. Egypt wasn't very far away. It was out of Herod's jurisdiction, and so he couldn't touch Jesus there. And there were about, at this time, one million Jews living in Egypt. And Egypt has been a place, even in the Old Testament of the Bible, where God's people have fleed to. We'll see an example of that later. 
So it seems a sensible option for Joseph to lie low there with his family until a safer time. So Joseph gets up in the night straight away and he flees. Herod would be totally clueless as to what has happened. And by the time the soldiers arrive in Bethlehem, Jesus has been long gone and God had delivered Jesus from Herod's hands. Now, despite the, the apparent urgency in this passage, it seems, doesn't it, that, that things are happening urgently, and, and I suppose they were, this is no close shave. God is in complete control in protecting his son. And so Joseph is told in a dream, uh, again, uh, we, we see uh, this in verse 19, uh, while he's in Egypt, to come back. Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. But when he arrives back, uh, he finds that there is another king on the throne. Herod died in 4 BC, but he finds Archelaus. He heard that Archelaus was on the throne, and he hears of his reputation. He was a threat, and Joseph is concerned. And so God speaks to Joseph again in a dream and tells him to go uh, to Nazareth. This was Joseph's hometown. We know this from Luke's Gospel. And it was out of the jurisdiction of Archelaus. And so Jesus could grow up in Nazareth safe and in obscurity, which he did so for about 30 years. Now again, notice how we've swept through this passage again, how God is in absolute control of this situation. Jesus is in danger on a human level, but really God is the one who is in overall control. And nothing will happen to his son unless he says so. And this is true for us as well. We are children of God, and God sovereignly cares for us as well. Nothing can happen to us as his people, that he is not in total control of and that we cannot completely trust him in, in every aspect of our lives. And part of showing our trust in God is through obedience. Notice how Joseph, throughout this passage, obeys God. Twice, in verses 14 and 21, we read the words, So he got up. He did what the Lord had commanded him. It would have been inconvenient to get up and walk 75 miles to the border of Egypt. That was just to the border. He would have had to keep going to where he would have had to stay. It would have been frightening. But Joseph did as God asked him to do. He didn't ask questions. He just obeyed. And even when the pressure is on, like here, and we feel like looking perhaps for our own solutions to our problems, God's word is always best for us and we always ought to be trusting and obeying what he says. I wonder in what areas are we under pressure at the moment? Think about it. In your own life, where are you under pressure? Whether it's discontentment, health problems, family issues, whatever it is, God is in complete control, and we can trust him to care for every area of our lives as his children. So we've swept through this passage twice. We've, we've peeled back the onion, if you like. But as we do so one final time, we come to an even bigger truth than we have seen so far. 
We've seen Satan planning to destroy Jesus. We've seen God planning to deliver Jesus. But all of this comes together under the sovereign will of God to reveal that God has an even bigger plan to save the world. I'm sure it's not escaped your attention that in this passage, the Old Testament runs all the way through it. If this passage were a song, there would be a chorus in the song. And the chorus is in verses 15, 17, and 23. It's slightly different in how it's said, but this is those verses. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, verse 15. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled, verse 17. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, verse 23. You see the chorus, fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Matthew is showing us how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. That all of what has been happening here is part of God's great plan, which has been in existence long before Herod, long before Joseph, even long before Satan. This is God's eternal and sovereign plan. And to show us this, Matthew uses Old Testament prophets to reveal how what has happened here to Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Now, in order for us to understand how this works, we need to understand how prophecy works in the Bible. And the important thing that we need to remember is that prophecy is not the same as prediction. It's not the same as prediction. Prediction says something like this. For example, this is an example, it didn't really happen. When I was born, someone could have stood over my uh, crib and said, Stephen is going to move to Pelsall when he's 30 years old. And then when I was 30 years old, I moved to Pelsall. And that, that didn't happen. But that was an example of a prediction. Now, prophets in the Old Testament were not usually predicting future events. Sometimes they were, but usually they were not. Rather, they were speaking about current events that in God's plan would have a future fulfillment. And that's the key word, fulfillment. So for example, a couple of weeks ago on Sunday morning, we looked at in Isaiah 7 and 8, Meher Halal Hashbaz, who was Isaiah's son. Isaiah prophesied to King Ahaz about a virgin conceiving and giving birth to a son. To King Ahaz, Isaiah is talking about the boy, Meher Halal Hashbaz, who before he is weaned, the two kings that were going to attack King Ahaz would be gone. They would be no more. But in the New Testament, God reveals that his plan is greater still and that Jesus fulfills that prophecy at a deeper level. So to Ahaz, Isaiah is talking about Meher Halal Hashbaz. But in God's greater plan, the fulfillment of that prophecy is in Jesus Christ. Now the same is going on in Matthew chapter 2. If we just see them as predictions, the accusation which we sometimes hear that Matthew just plucks out verses from the Old Testament of the Bible, puts them in the New Testament and says, oh, here Jesus has done this, might really ring true. But they're not merely predictions. They're fulfillment in God's greater plan. Matthew didn't pluck anything out of the Old Testament. God gave him, through the Spirit, a knowledge of the Old Testament that showed him how Jesus fulfills it. 
So under the influence of the Holy Spirit, Matthew gives us these three verses from the Old Testament to show us that God has a great plan for the salvation of mankind. That is, as God delivers his son Jesus, as he always planned to do, so he will deliver us from Satan's power. So let's look at these three sections again, all of which are related to the three attempts on Jesus' life, which hopefully you can see in small on the bottom of the screen. So first of all, with the targeted assassination, the Magi go another route and God knows what's coming and tells Joseph to take uh, Jesus to Egypt. Now we've looked at one layer of this onion. Egypt is a place where Joseph knows Jesus will be safe. It's a sensible thing to do. But now we know that something deeper is going on. Joseph was to take Jesus to Egypt, and as he does this, the prophecy in verse 15 is fulfilled, out of Egypt I called my son. This is from Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. So what was Hosea saying? Hosea was not predicting, he was not predicting that the Messiah was going to come out of Egypt. In the book of Hosea as a whole, Israel, as God's people, are being rebuked for rebelling against God. And in Hosea 11, God talks about how much he loves Israel, who he calls his son. Israel is called God's son as a nation in the Old Testament. First of all, in Exodus chapter 4 and verses 22 and 23, just before God brings them out of Egypt in the Exodus. They were refugees in Egypt and they stayed there for lots of years before they were slaves and God delivers them in the exodus of Egypt. God shows his people how he loves them by delivering them from their slavery and bringing them to the promised land. That's what Hosea was saying. Israel, you've rebelled, but I love you so much. I've shown you I loved you by delivering you from slavery. That's what Hosea was saying. But in the New Testament, we see here how Jesus takes this prophecy to another level. For as God sent Israel to Egypt and then delivered them in the Exodus, so Jesus is Israel here, who after being a refugee in Egypt, brings a new Exodus. For us, Jesus brings a new Exodus from slavery in sin to new life in him, eternal life. Just as in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, we read, he will save his people from their sins, which is what Egypt represents. Egypt here represents sin, and he delivers us from it. So Jesus fulfills this word from Hosea with a new exodus. And as we read through Matthew, we will see how Jesus lived through what Israel did But crucially, unlike Israel, he did not fail. We'll see that lots of times as we read through the book of Matthew. Thus Jesus is shown to be a true blessing to all nations, which is what Israel should have been. And we see this uh, in the flight to Egypt. Notice the parallel here. Joseph, the dreamer, has gone before them into Egypt and God brings them out. Two Josephs, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. Both taking Israel as refugees, God bringing them through. You see the Old Testament there and how it's fulfilled in this passage. Then we see another prophecy with the massacre of the innocents. 
So Herod kills the children who are two years old and under. Again, notice how Herod is just like Pharaoh, who wanted to kill all the baby boys in Egypt and wipe out the people of God. But this act in Bethlehem fulfills a prophecy spoken long after Pharaoh had failed in his attempt to wipe out God's people. This is in verse 17. Uh, Let's read that together. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted. Now this is from Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 15. Jeremiah is a prophet who prophesies to the nation of Judah just before they go into exile in Babylon. They had rebelled against God as a people and God allowed as a punishment the, 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 nation, the kingdom of Babylon to come and destroy the nation and either uh, kill people or take them into exile in Babylon. And they took the younger generation into exile, the ones that would be the most useful. And Ramah was a city five miles north of Jerusalem and it was the place where the people were processed. Either they were killed or they were taken away into exile. And you can imagine this horrible picture as the people of God are marched up to Ramah by the Babylonians and the younger generation who would be wanted by Babylon were either killed or ripped away from their mothers and taken away. And it says uh, here, Rachel is weeping. Rachel uh, is uh, is the mother uh, in, in, in Genesis who is the metaphorical mother of all of Israel. She's been long dead but she's the metaphorical mother of Israel. And we might use the phrase, she'd be turning in her grave. That's what Rachel's doing here. Now, again, Jeremiah is not predicting a massacre at Bethlehem. He is talking of events in Ramah in the 5th century BC. However, these weeping mothers were in a long line of weeping mothers from the babies being thrown in the Nile in Egypt all the way to this tragedy here in Bethlehem where we see the mothers crying again. But it's deeper still than a mere repetition of an ancient event. For Jeremiah 31 is actually a chapter of great hope. In fact, verse 15 of Jeremiah 31 is the low point of that chapter. The next verse of Jeremiah 31, verse 16, says this, Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For your work will be rewarded, says the Lord. You see, in this chapter of Jeremiah, God tells the people that they will be restored from their exile, that they will be allowed back to the land again in the future. But also in this chapter is a promise of a new covenant, written on the hearts of God's people so that they can no longer be sent into exile because they can no longer uh, rebel against God in such a way that they will be no longer in his presence because the law is written on their hearts. And Matthew tells us that it's fulfilled here because these tears that these mothers in Bethlehem shed are the last tears of those exiles because with Jesus there's a way back to God. There is a new covenant. Jesus has escaped this massacre and therefore when he comes back from Egypt he brings with him a new covenant And the exile away from God will truly be over as he saves his people from their sins. Now even now we see Christians suffering persecution and crying out to God. Those tears will end. 
Christ has come and Christ will come again to destroy the power of Satan completely. Here we see, if you like, the the low point of this passage where all these children are being murdered because Satan hates Jesus. And even now, Christians are murdered for believing in Jesus, but one day this will end as Jesus returns and destroys the power of Satan completely. That's why I love that section of the, 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 the carol we sung, God rest you merry gentlemen. It says, God rest you merry gentlemen, for nothing you dismay. Remember, Christ our Saviour was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power. When we were gone astray, O oh, tidings of comfort and joy. That is why that verse, that prophecy is here. No longer do you need to weep, for Jesus has come. So we see a new exodus. We see a new covenant. What about this last prophecy in verse 23? Joseph has returned from Egypt, and on arriving he finds the evil king Archelaus. Now for safety he avoids the area of Judea, and he sensibly goes to live in Nazareth in the country of Galilee. Now again, on that one layer, this is sensible. It's away from Archelaus, it's out of his jurisdiction, it's obscure, and they shouldn't receive too much trouble there. But something else is going on. It says at the end of verse 23, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now the odd thing with this verse is that there is not an Old Testament reference that mentions not only this verse, but even Nazareth. There are Old Testament characters like Samson, uh, and you could include John the Baptist, that were Nazarites. That is, they took a vow of separation to God where they couldn't drink wine, cut hair, or touch dead bodies. Now, Jesus was not a Nazarite. For although we don't know much about his hairstyle, he seemed to drink wine and he did touch dead bodies. Now, this refers rather to being a dweller of Nazareth rather than being a Nazarite. So is Matthew referring to some Old Testament book that we don't know about. Well, perhaps, but it's not likely. So, so what is going on here? Well, notice how Matthew uses the plural for prophets here. Notice the plural. It says, that was ful- fulfilled what was said through the, the prophets. That is, that it's a, a general saying throughout the Old Testament prophets. So as we read the Old Testament we see Jesus described as a Nazarene. A Nazarene is a dweller of Nazareth. And the town of Nazareth was a town much looked down upon. For example, in John's Gospel, when Nathanael is told where Jesus comes from, he says this, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? That's the reputation Nazareth had. When I lived in Devon, there was a particular area of Plymouth called Swilly. Now you can see from the name it wasn't a great place to live. And if you came from Swilly, well, you just had a terrible reputation. I mean, people wouldn't get jobs if you came from this area. The council did a lot of work and it changed the name, but it never was really lost that reputation. That's the kind of uh, reputation Nazareth has. It's the it's an area where you just wouldn't want to say you were from. You know the kind of area I mean. The description of him as a Nazarene is a description of one who is despised. 
A person from Nazareth would be rejected. Does that ring any bells? Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with grief. Psalm chapter 22 and verse 7, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. And there are many other references like this describing the way that Jesus was looked down upon. He was called a Nazarene. Even in Jewish rabbinical writings, he is described in this way, Yeshu HaNotzi, Jesus the Nazarene, and it was a term of derision. But Jesus was not just a Nazarene as a prediction that he would be mocked. No, there are things that being a Nazarene tells us. First of all, it highlights the authenticity of the gospel. Someone making a saviour up would not make him from Nazareth. I mean, that's why the Magi went to Jerusalem, wasn't it? They wouldn't go to Nazareth. Secondly, uh, the saviour coming from a place like Nazareth shows us that he is for all people, regardless of where they're from. From Nazareth, or if you're from Plymouth, even from Swilly, you're welcome in God's kingdom. But finally, this shows us the greatness of God, that the saviour of the world is not from some great city like Jerusalem. He's not some great earthly king from a great city, but a humble carpenter from a despised town. That's our saviour. And he shows himself to be God, the saviour of the world. But as we come to the end of this passage, or the end of this sermon, I want you to see something that's more amazing than anything else that we have seen so far. The final thing I want you to see, if you like, it's the the centre of the onion, the, the sweetest, the most flavoursome part of all. Notice that Satan has a plan to destroy Jesus. But in Satan trying to destroy Jesus, Joseph is led to take Jesus to places that fulfills the Old Testament plan that God had all along. How great is our God that even though the enemy plans great evil, God even uses this great evil for his good and perfect plans for the salvation of the whole world. I mean, it's mind-blowing, isn't it? It's amazing that God does, that can do this. As we read this passage of Scripture, we see the greatness of God that's beyond anything we could imagine. And whatever circumstances we face right now, surely this passage should cause us to trust in the God who has all things under control and has, ha- and has a sovereign plan that has been there for all eternity. Even the evil that is planned against us, God uses for good for his good and perfect plans that have been in place forever. Even as Satan tries to destroy the people of God, God uses those things for, his, for, for fulfilling his good and perfect plan that has always been in place. You see, in the, in the title of this message, we say two kings, but really there is one king. Jesus is king. God is king. And he is in control. And there's nothing that the enemy can do to foil God's plan. So let us, as we uh, perhaps go to our beds tonight, meditate on this. 
And I would perhaps say, maybe not too much, because it will keep you up. It's so deep, so, so great, so awesome. That will never plumb the depths of the greatness of our God. But at least we can read this and pray. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we can praise him with our hallelujahs because he is such an awesome and great and mighty God who is king and is in control of all things in all of our situations. Yes, we can trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the deep truths of the scriptures. We thank you that uh, you reveal uh, these wonderful uh, scriptures to us that tell us so much about you. We thank you that you are a God who is so vast and so great and so awesome that we shall never plumb the depths of who you are. But we thank you, Father, that you reveal to us that you are a God who is king and is in complete control. And I pray that you would help us right now to put our trust wholly in you, whatever our circumstances, and that we would just worship you as our king. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand uh, and sing our uh, two songs to finish. Uh, Songs that acknowledge that our God is the God who reigns. Uh, Let's praise him first of all with, and he shall reign forever. And then, awake, awake, O Zion, our God reigns. Let's stand and worship the King. Thank you.